All right, let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. If, you, uh, if you're watching us online, uh, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to uh, that part of our time together. Um, so if you don't own a Bible, we, we, we believe that God's Word is something that's incredibly special. He's given it to us for all kinds of important reasons, but chief among those important reasons is that he gives it to us to reveal himself to us. We want to know God. We want you to know God. We want everything in you and about you and around you to be defined by and viewed through the lens of walking deeply with him. And so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, uh, get a hold of me and uh, we, can, we can fix that pretty quickly. Uh, we have Bibles around here that we like to give away. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So we are in uh, week 11 now of an effort to walk slowly through the, the letter that we call 1 Corinthians together. Uh, the, the letter is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the Greek city of Corinth. We think it was written somewhere between 53 and 55 AD, so middle first century. Uh, and so uh, those of you who are kind of history nuts can kind of paint the picture yourself. Um, Paul had been a, a key figure in the beginning of the church in Corinth. He was one of the, the first people to, to preach the gospel in that city, and, and the church kind of emerged out of that. But he had since moved on from there to other places to start new work and new churches in those other places. And, and in fact, uh, we think, for instance, that he was probably in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. And so he had been traveling all around the ancient world, starting churches here and there. And some places he was incredibly successful, some places he wasn't successful at all. But most of the time, uh, God just kind of used him in a big way. And uh, but he knows the culture of the city of Corinth. And so these aren't strangers to him. He knows the city. He knows the dysfunctions of the church there. Uh, and so like a skilled surgeon, he goes straight after the tumor, right? He cuts deep on purpose out of love for them to fix some massive problems that are going to end up causing even more damage than, uh, than the surgery would, right? And so over and over again, He's going to show the Corinthian church that, that the things that, that they're chasing after and the ways that they're choosing to, to posture themselves and position themselves in the city that they're in, right, not only is it, is it destined to fail, but, but also it's entirely upside down from the kingdom that God had supposedly saved them into. It's entirely upside down from, from, from everything that God has called them to value and chase after. And so uh, God's kingdom is intentionally different from all the other kingdoms of this world. The va it values and pursues different things. It, it celebrates and exalts different things. And it, it feels foreign and upside down to those who haven't been turned right side up yet. God's kingdom is always going to feel like that to those who are looking at it from the outside or, or those who are just beginning to wade into it. It's always going to feel upside down. And, and that means either A, God doesn't know what he's doing and he, he could have made a better system, better kingdom that saw the world a little bit better. Or maybe God's the only one who knows what he's talking about and it needs to be up, upside down. And it's glorifying to God that it's upside down and it's better for all of us that it's upside down. Those are really the only two options. Either God doesn't know what he's doing or God's the only one who knows what he's doing. And so whenever we find ourselves in the middle of these two kingdoms in dissonance, right, the question that we've been training to ask ourselves is, okay, but is it beautiful? Sure, it's, it's awkward. Sure, it's difficult to wrap our heads around at the, at, the, at the onset, but is it good? 
Is it true? Is it, is it, does, it, does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answers to those questions are yes, well, then maybe the dissonance is something that we can get over. We can endure for a little while because we know that God is preparing something much, much greater on the backside of that dissonance. We can, we can trust that his kingdom is, far, is a far better home, much happier home. And because of that, we can endure the moment of awkward and we can endure the moment of contempt. And it's because we trust that the one making the kingdom and reigning over the kingdom is actually good. So we've been wading deeper and deeper into this, these upside down kingdom realities over the last several weeks. And I wish I could tell you this morning that it's going to be an easy week for us. But that wouldn't be true. It's going to be hard for some. But hopefully we can put on our grown-up pants and show our trust in God's goodness this morning, right? Show our trust in the goodness of who He is and the goodness of His Word by waiting just a little bit deeper. So we pointed out several times over the course of this series so far that this is not the first uh, piece of, of this longer conversation. That The letter that we call 1 Corinthians is, is not the first word. There's, there's been a letter each back and forth uh, from each party by this point, we're sure of. Uh, we know that there has been a report from Chloe's people. And so this, we're falling into the middle of a longer, deeper conversation. And so uh, in verse 1 here, we're going to see another, one, another instance of Paul referring to that previous conversation. He's going to begin answering some direct questions that they asked him in the letter that they wrote to him. All right? And so you ready to jump into it? 1 Corinthians 7, look in verse 1. Paul says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, so when you fail to define sex uh, on, on God's terms, you don't, you don't simply fall victim to one version of misunderstanding. You don't simply fall victim to one version of malpractice and perversion. You end up falling victim to every version of malpractice and perversion. Once you step outside of God's design, once you uh, skew the, the compass bearing at all, it goes south and it goes south quickly. All things are now on the table for you. And la last week we saw the, that some in the Corinthian church were, they were running off to engage in sexual immorality because, because they had disconnected, right, the, the, the spiritual dynamic of sex away from the physical. They saw it as purely a physical act. And so they said, ah, what, what does it matter? I, I, I've got the physical side of me and I've got the spiritual side of me. And as long as I keep those compartmentalized, I'm okay. This shouldn't be an issue. They, they falsely believed that, that they were only responding to physical urges in a physical way and that it shouldn't have any bearing at all on spiritual realities. And then Paul, well, he dedicates the back after, of chapter 6 to just completely tearing that idea apart. He ain't having it. But now Paul turns his attention to a close cousin of what I think is the same problem. While some were running off into sexual immorality, others were swinging this pendulum all the way to the other side, and they were either refusing to get married, or they were married and they were refusing to have a sexual relationship with their spouse because they saw it as some kind of impediment to the pursuit of this higher spiritual life that they wanted. So we've got bookends of the same failure here. 
They saw sex incorrectly. It was, it was a form of Gnosticism that, that caused them to believe that their bodies were inherently sinful. Not only sinful, but helplessly or hopelessly irredeemable. That, 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 that nothing good could ever come from the physical side of them. And, and because of that, their bodies, along with other physical realities that they had in view, those, those realities needed to be avoided and needed to be escaped whenever possible. And so they practiced abstinence. Not because it was pleasing to the Lord and honored his gift of sex, but because they self-righteously believed that asceticism unlocked something for them. And it unlocked a, a higher plane of spiritual existence. That's the problem that, that Paul is beginning to wade into. When you, when you boil it all down, though, it was just a, a different flavor of the same self-exaltation. It was a same pride-fuel attempts to find their identity in something that they were trying to build for themselves. And so somehow, some way, whether it was, you know, <laughs> I guess they asked him a, a question in a letter, it gets back to Paul that this is what they're doing, and so now he's going to answer it directly. So let's reread verse 1. It's now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So same deal as last week, right? There's, a, there's nuance introduced here. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't come out and say, Sex is the end-all be-all. He doesn't come out and say that, that they don't know what they're talking about. He adds layers to this that they haven't considered yet. Last week, Paul didn't tell them that they, they don't actually have freedom in Christ. He told them that their freedom should never, ever, ever, ever lead them into something that, was, that, that enslaved them or was even unhelpful to them. They hadn't considered all the angles yet. Now, now here in chapter 7, he doesn't say that singleness is bad or sinful. He says that, that they're dealing with real-world realities here, real-world issues of, of temptation here. And if God has called you to be single, great. God's called you to be single. That's fine. But if he hasn't called you to be single, well, then abstinence just for the sake of abstinence, just because it sounds holier than the other option, what you're doing is you're actually crippling yourself. Just go ahead and get married, he says. You don't have to make this hard on yourself just to prove a point. Stripping sex of its spiritual component and pretending that, that it's nothing more than a physical act, that's sin. And I think we all kind of get that it's sin. But listen, turning sex into the greatest ever enemy of God's people, pretending yourself to be some kind of martyr for having been the one to give it up, that's also sin. It's also sin. Why? Because you're still placing your identity in the wrong thing. You're still placing your identity in the wrong thing. Paul says that, that there's a real temptation out there for sexual immorality. And God gives you a great pathway for avoiding that temptation. It's called marriage. You ought to check it out. And so he says, you're, you're making this more complicated than you got to make this. Just get married. And then once you get married... Enjoy yourself within that marriage without temptation. Now, those of you who have been married for longer than a minute know that temptation doesn't just magically go away. Well, you're in luck because Paul's going to address that issue too. Starting in verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. 
Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except uh, perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that married couples should have lots of sex. Full stop. That's what he's saying. And listen, I know I keep saying it, but I really hope by now people are starting to get the picture. Anybody who thinks that the Bible is boring is proving that they've never read it. Right? Husbands, you got a verse. Now, no husband that's been married for longer than five minutes is dumb enough to try to quote it back to his wife. But you got a verse. Paul speaks to this idea of husbands and wives mutually giving of themselves to each other. Even to the point where the husband's body doesn't belong to him anymore. It's, it's been given to the wife. It now belongs to her. It's her property. And the, and the same goes for the wife's body. It now belongs to the husband. And man, the implications of that affect a billion things, not only in the marriage bed, but literally in every other aspect of a married couple's life. Seriously, there's a seismic shift that occurs in a marriage whenever a husband and wife go looking to serve rather than to be served. You want some free marriage advice this morning? You want a little counseling on the the house? Here Here it is. The day both of you stop fighting for what you want and stop fighting for what you think you deserve and instead you go start looking for how to serve your spouse, it'll fix a whole bunch of problems you got. It really will. It'll change just about everything in your relationship. And does that require an attitude change on, on the part of both people to try to pull that off? Yeah, for the most part it does. It's really hard to do when you don't have both people invested. But like I seem to be telling my kids every 30 minutes these days, you don't have to wait for the other person to do what they're supposed to do for you to do what you're supposed to do. It comes out of my mouth every day at least. You don't get to wait until the other one is doing what they're supposed to do for you to do what you're supposed to be doing. You're responsible for you. That's, that's free marriage advice. That's free economic advice. That's free political advice. Hey, let's fix all the world's problems today. You do what you're supposed to do. and Let them catch up. Paul tells husbands and wives that they should make a regular habit of enjoying their sexual relationship. How often is regular? He doesn't say. And thank goodness he doesn't, because then husbands would be dumb enough to quote it. (laughs) Every couple has different rhythms. Every couple has different stages in life. Every couple has even different medical needs. All right, And so there's there's no one-size-fits-all here. But the idea is that it's frequent enough to prevent avoidable temptation. To prevent avoidable temptation. Notice at the end of verse 5, he says, So that. We love that phrase around here, right? So this is a command, but it's also a means to a greater end. The Bible, uh, he says it's so that Satan may not tempt you, right? The Bible is crystal clear that we have an enemy and that that enemy is actively at work. He's prowling around like a lion, right? Looking to devour. 
And so last week, we, we talked about how there's a heightened reality to the, the damage that, that sexual sin does to you, right? That there's this heightened uh, uh, effect uh, on your body and on those around you to, to sexual sin. And, and so here's a massive question that we probably need to figure out. Do, do you think our great enemy likes to use his best tool? Do you think he's looking for footholds? Do you think he's looking for ways to wedge himself in there so he can twist some things and get you into the most trouble and cause the most damage? Probably so. Think it's more advantageous for him to find those leverage points? So Paul here, he says that a husband and wife are to enjoy each other and that they would actually make frequent practice of enjoying, enjoying each other sexually for the, for the specific reason of, of not giving Satan the opportunity to tempt you. The Bible literally teaches that you guard your marriage from spiritual attack by having lots of sex. You're welcome. But married couples aren't the only ones that Paul needs to address here. They're not the only ones who are seeing this incorrectly. So look at verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Verse 8, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, so there's a ton of debate surrounding uh, verse 6 here. And because there's some debate around verse 6, it ends up actually creating some debate about verses 7 through 9 as well. Um, So the way that Greek was written uh, during this part of the world was all kind of smashed together. Uh, It's translators that come along later uh, that break it out into the paragraphs that we're normally seeing and are familiar with. And so um, many translation committees and many commentators uh, disagree on whether verse 6 here should be the last piece of the paragraph that we uh, read earlier, just talked about, or if it should be the very first word of the section that we just read. All right? And so there's disagreement on if it's tagged onto the end of the first five verses or if it's the first thought in the next several verses. And so why does that matter? Well, if it is connected to the paragraph above it, that means that Paul is just offering a disclaimer on on his little marriage advice to say that his advice is just that. It's advice. It's not a command. All right? And so that needs to be taken into account. However, there are folks, and the more I've looked at it this week, the more convinced I think I'm one of them. All right, there are folks who, who think that are convinced that verse 6 is the first word of this new thought. And that's, so, that's why the ESV breaks it out into a new paragraph like it does. Maybe you have a different Bible translation and it keeps it a part of the paragraph above. And so that, that's that disagreement that you see playing out. I think it's in the next piece, though. Um, and so what is the advice that Paul's given then? That's not a command, just a consent. Well, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. And then in verse 8, he tells us that he's single. He's not married when he's writing this letter. Which, by the way, creates a whole bunch of other debate because some people are convinced that Paul was married at some point previously to this letter. And, and if that's true, that, that means that Paul's wife, at some point along the way, either left him or she had died and Paul's now a widower. Um... Honestly, though, I'm not convinced by those arguments. If you want to sit down and talk about it and flesh that out over a cup of coffee, that sounds like a fun afternoon for me. Um, Some people think that's true. 
I'm not convinced. But whether he was or he wasn't, regardless of how we land that plane, verses 7 and 8 make it explicitly clear that he's not married as of the writing of this letter. And so Paul's advice, his concession, is that he wishes that more people would commit to singleness just like he did, just like he has. Oh, well, wait a minute. Didn't, didn't we make a big deal out of verse 2 when Paul's telling people to quit making this complicated and just go ahead and get married? Like, like, like I remember talking about that, right? He did. He did make a big deal out of it, and that was because... That, that was because he understands that there's a real temptation to sexual immorality out there and that not everybody has been called to walk that pathway. But here in verse 7, he says that some people are called to walk that pathway. In fact, he even has the audacity to describe it as a gift. Now, I don't know about you, um, but it's been my experience that most of the single people I know don't see singleness as a gift. At least not the young ones whether it's a longing in their heart that God hasn't met yet or, or sadly more often some, some kind of other influence in their life telling them that they're unfulfilled because they haven't gotten married yet. But whether that pressure is an internal thing or that pressure is an external thing, it's still a pressure that's foreign to the Bible. It's an unfair pressure. And so Paul here, he's, he, he wishes that there were more people who had the gift of singleness, he, the gift of celibacy. And so how, how could those things ever be considered a gift though, right? Like, don't, don't we tend to see marriage as this kind of fulfillment of ourselves? Wouldn't that be the gift? We'll talk about it more in the next couple of weeks, but the short answer, the short answer of why it should be seen as a gift is that you get to walk deeply with God and you play a strategic role in His kingdom. And so the implication of what Paul's saying here is that there, there may actually be more people in the church who do have this gift, but they've never pursued it. And the reason why they've never pursued it is because they've never stopped long enough to see it as a gift. They've either continued to pursue relationships that they shouldn't outside of God's purposes for them or, or maybe they've always kind of viewed singleness as the, some kind of curse that it was their responsibility to try to fix. But both of those scenarios are outside of God's good design for you and both of those scenarios will always end up leaving you frustrated and lonely. Always. They never, ever work. You, you may end up getting married, but frustrated and lonely remains. And listen, if, if you're single, I, I know that's a hard word. I, I really do, but out of a depth of love for you that would see you walk deeply with the Lord, even at cost of personal relationship here, may I turn the volume up one more click? Back in verse 2, just like it was just like those who styled themselves as martyrs for self-righteously practicing abstinence, just like, a, just like it was a, a sin for them to try to find their identity in something other than what God had joyfully given to them. Listen, it is also sin for those who have been given the gift of singleness to ignore that gift and instead continue desperately chasing after identity in something other than what God has joyfully given them. It's also sin. They may flesh themselves out in completely different ways, but they, they are both 
rooted in the same core disconnect, chasing identity, chasing satisfaction in something of your own making. It's the same sin in two different styles. Over and over again, no matter what problem we're talking about in the Corinthian church, and we'll see this play out as we continue to read the letter, but no matter what problem we're talking about in the Corinthian church, it always birthed itself out of a prideful attempt to make much of themselves. Always. No matter what good thing we want to point to, they found a way to twist that good thing and and use that good thing, manipulate that good thing to chase after satisfaction on their own terms rather than on God's terms. It's the same problem over and over and over again. But uh, you can do that with a pious abstinence and you can just as easily do that with desperately trying to find the one. But both of those realities are rooted in a you-centered effort to chase an idol of your own making doesn't matter how much faith we try to place in an idol, try to place in a pretend God. Pretend gods never have the legs to satisfy what only the real God can satisfy. So we've got, we've got Paul telling some folks to quit overthinking and just hurry up and get married. And we've got Paul telling some other folks that they ought to commit to a lifetime of singleness. How do we figure out which one we are? Like, like how, do we, how do we navigate this? And, and, and there's a very real possibility of, of falling into sin no matter which one we choose, right? And so how are those who are, are at least trying to walk in faithfulness ever supposed to make heads or tails of this? What, what do we do? Well, I know it sounds really simplistic, maybe too simplistic, but, but I really think the answer is that we stop trying so hard. I really think that's the answer. I think the answer is that we take our hands off of the results and we let God be God. In verse 7, Paul didn't just say that singleness is a gift. He says that marriage and singleness are a gift. In other words, this isn't some pick-your-own-adventure story. God is giving to some this, and He's giving to some that, and we let Him be the one to give. If God has placed someone in your life that's marriable, and I would very clearly clarify that, the Bible's definition of marriable, not the ones we create for ourselves. Sometimes they are completely different things. But if God has put someone in your life that's marriable, quit overthinking it. Go get married. And if God has not placed someone in your life that looks like that, I think Paul would say, quit overthinking this. He's not ready for you to get married. God has chosen to give you a different gift for now. And we can talk about the selfishness of wanting a different gift than what we've received. I deal with that with my kids every Christmas. But man, I really think that the much bigger issue on the table is do we actually trust the goodness of the giver? Do we truly believe that he's smarter than us? Do we truly believe that he is good? Do we truly believe that he's working toward our good? Do we truly see that he sees the end from the beginning? Do we trust the goodness of the giver? Because if we do, then that might seriously affect how we see all of these things, right? It might take them from the top of the mountain and place them somewhere closer to the bottom. Paul frames singleness that's 
It's something that's advantageous here. It's, it would be something that would benefit you and be a benefit to the, to the kingdom, a powerful tool for the kingdom. It, it, I get it. That probably feels upside down to those who are chasing. But there's the questions, right? Is it beautiful? Yeah, it's hard to hear, but is it good? Is it true? What, what if God is walking you with you as he aims you towards a more eternal reality in a fading world? Can we trust him then? Really hope so. But listen, as difficult as that discussion is, we're only getting warmed up. Now it's time for the fun stuff. Verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not uh, separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So I bet nobody has an opinion about this stuff. Right? Ain't controversial at all. Paul's no longer giving a concession rather than a command. He's very clearly back at the command stage, right? In fact, he says that this is directly from the Lord. As in, Jesus said this first. Matthew 19, 1-9, Mark 10, 1-12, Luke 16, 18. Jesus very clearly tells his followers that the culture they live in got divorced completely wrong. Dead wrong. He tells them that most of the excuses they used to permit divorce in their society were not accepted by God. And he tells them that because those divorces were illegitimate in God's eyes, that marrying again was viewed by God as the same as committing adultery. Why? Well, because in God's eyes, he joined two people into one. And you don't get to tear that apart just because you ain't feeling it anymore. There's a spiritual reality to that relationship that goes deeper than a state-level contract. Now, are, are there biblical allowances for divorce? Yeah. Yeah, there are. Jesus himself, in those three texts that we talked about a second ago, Jesus himself mentions unfaithfulness as a legitimate reason. That two has already been separated because they joined themselves to another. In a a couple of verses, Paul is going to add abandonment to the list here. Uh, It's never explicitly mentioned in the Bible, but I'm pretty certain that I can make a sound biblical argument that abuse is on the list as well. So there's a list. But no matter how we try to spin this, the list is a, is a handful of some very clear exceptions to the rule and it doesn't look anything at all like what we practice in our society. Not even close. Doesn't look anything at all like what's going on in the city of Corinth either. Paul has real world problems he's dealing with here. A bunch of people who are divorced that shouldn't be divorced and and so he echoes Jesus' own teaching. He tells them, he tells those who, who might be thinking of pursuing a divorce not to, that they shouldn't. He tells those that have already done so to either seek reconciliation or to refrain from getting married again. That's his command. In other words, if you can't fix the problem, or if you can fix the problem, then fix the problem. But if you can't fix the problem, at least don't make the problem worse. That's his command. Don't add more sin on top of the sin that's already there. 
What about companionship, though? Divorcees need love, too. Sure they do. No one doubts that. One, that's why God has given us the church. Two, are are we really going to pursue companionship at the cost of adding more sin? Is that that really the price that we're willing to pay on this? And and didn't three, didn't we just make clear a couple of verses ago that singleness ought to be seen as a gift? Is that any less true for the divorcee as it is for the one who's never been married? You got to do some gymnastics to get there. So we live in the real world, right? We've got folks who, in our world and even in our church, that not only have been divorced for unbiblical reasons, but folks that have also done what comes natural to the world and gone and found themselves with another spouse and gotten married again. Paul had real world issues. We got real world issues. So how should we see it? And secondly, what should we do about it, right? It's easy to read stuff and say, thus saith the Lord, but what's the next step? And for starters, I think we need to humble ourselves before the Lord and humble ourselves before His Word and actually repent of past sin. Actually repent of it. We don't walk in faithfulness by justifying ourselves or pretending what happened in the past wasn't as big of a deal as what it actually is. We don't avoid sin. That's what the pagans do. We acknowledge our sin and we repent of our sin. We we live in in a broken world and the reality is that sometimes, sometimes we add to the brokenness. But thanks be to God, man, Jesus came for that sin too. He came for that sin too. His work on the cross is truly a finished work. Payment is made, guilt is removed, and reconciliation with God is freely offered. Freely offered. And so first and foremost, we repent of past sin, but then secondly, right on the heels of that, we make every effort to restore what we can without adding more sin to the pile. If you can fix the problem, then fix the problem. But if you can't fix the problem, don't make the problem worse. And then after that, after that, we walk as those who have been washed. We walk as those who have been washed. We walk as those who have been sanctified. We walk as those who have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that's it. It's over. The Christian pattern, no matter if we're talking about this sin or any other sin on the book, the Christian pattern is that we call sin exactly what it is, we treat it exactly how it ought to be treated, and then we walk in his glory and his grace. We walk in his goodness and his great love for us in spite of us. And then we move on to the next verse. Verse 12, to the rest I say, not I, 
I, not the Lord, excuse me. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, so Paul here draws a very careful distinction uh, between him repeating what Jesus had already taught on to now moving into a new category that Jesus hadn't already clearly taught on, right? So there's a written record of Jesus uh, teaching about divorce, but there's not a written record about abandonment, okay? And so he, he's still in the command mode, but he very clearly separates Jesus is teaching from his own teaching here. And so he draws a distinction between those two things. And so this new issue are, are believers who are married to non-believers. Whether someone is married and they end up becoming a Christian and their spouse doesn't, or someone is a believer and they intentionally married somebody who's not a believer. That second scenario, the Bible would never, ever, ever encourage you to do. But again, we, we live in the real world here, so here we are. We've got real-world problems to deal with and sort out. So what does Paul say? He says you're married. So do everything in your power to be a great spouse. You go be the best Christian spouse there is. Yeah, it's going to be hard. Yeah, there are battles that you're going to have to fight that believing spouses are not going to have to fight, but you're in this, so start making the best of it. So he says, as long as your spouse is content to stay with you, your job is to be the best Christian spouse that you can be. And so you put in the effort to do what you've been called to do. And in doing so, both your spouse and your children have the best opportunity to become Christians. Why? Because they get an example that other people don't get. They are called out and separated because they have a loving missionary in their own home do something with it. They're set apart as different than other non-believers because they have your example right in front of them. Hopefully it's a good example. As a side note, this also means that if your example isn't very Christ-like, it's going to be much harder for them to become Christians because they really see you. The longer you're connected with missions, and the more stories, sadly, you hear about missionaries doing grave danger to the cause of the gospel because they were bad missionaries. It happens. You have a truly uphill battle in your home, but we're just going to go ahead and assume that you're nailing it right now, right? You got it. Don't worry about it. Paul says that if you're doing what you've been called to do, but your unbelieving spouse chooses to abandon you, that God see, would see that as a justifiable reason for divorce. Let it be so, he says. Let it be so. You've walked as faithfully as you can. You're not enslaved here. Be at peace. Does that mean you should run off and go get married to somebody else? Paul doesn't say so explicitly here, but at the end of chapter 7, he says that someone is bound to their spouse until their spouse dies. Jesus said the same thing when he was giving the allowance for divorce because of unfaithfulness, so the answer would be no. You shouldn't. And the hope here 
The hope buried in all this is that there's potential still out there. It exists just out on the horizon. Maybe it's unreachable, but the potential is out there that by the grace of God, your spouse will eventually come to salvation and then, then reconciliation can happen. That's the hope. That's the best version of happily ever after in this story. Was that promised to happen? Not a bit. Is it a long, painful road to walk? Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is. You're, you're going to need the community of the church to walk beside you in, that, in those days. Absolutely. But hear me. We either trust that God's commands are good or we don't. We either believe that he is capable of carrying us through as the husband that we ultimately didn't have. Or he's not. What Paul is spelling out here, it's backwards, it's inside out, it is upside down from just about every atom of the culture that we've created for ourselves. It doesn't make any sense at all outside of these walls. I'm sure of it. And even inside these walls, we're, we're, we're going to struggle with it, right? Because we're influenced by what's outside of these walls. And in a world that, that views both singleness and marriage as platforms for self-exaltation, Right? Can we be honest about that? In a world that views both singleness and marriage as tools that I can use to make much of myself, Paul comes in and reframes both of those things into things that ought to be used for God's glory alone. We don't get to rob him of glory on this thing. He's the one who gives the gift. He's the one who sets the terms. And I get it. That sounds awfully contemptible to anyone who thinks that they understand this stuff better than God does. We have a different problem to deal with there, don't we? But is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? So what do we do with this text, right? How do we respond to God's word this morning? The upside-down kingdom is quite often more transcendent than we're capable of immediately grabbing a hold of. It's just the reality. There's still things in our hearts and our heads that, that haven't let go of, of old paradigms. So, so what do we do with this? It, I think it takes eyes that have been spiritually opened. But at the same time, man, I, God seems to be a God who really enjoys opening people's eyes. And so, so we ask him to do that. Trusting that he can and that he will and that he wants to even. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God reveals about himself in the text. And I think we, I think we need to continue uh, asking him to, to, to give us eternal views of these things. To take our hands off of what we're trying to control and what we're trying to manipulate and we're trying to, to pull off for, for our happiness or our satisfaction. We need to instead beg him to change how we see this to see it the way he does, right? We ask God to give us eyes to see, to take our eyes off how, how we might use these things to make much of ourselves. And instead we beg him to help us use these things to make much of him. And then... Then we find our rest in his goodness and grace. That's it. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond by meeting Jesus. Listen, I think it's pretty clear from 1 Corinthians 7 that when the Bible talks about following Jesus as Savior and Lord, it's not talking about just the spiritual corner of your life. He wants all of you. 
And he will not settle for part of you. He wants every bit of you who you are. He wants to completely change who you are and how you see the world. He wants you to forever find your identity in him and him alone. He wants to rule and reign over everything, and he will not settle for something less than everything. So the question that needs to be answered, though, is, is he trustworthy to rule it? If that's what he wants, is he... Is he trustworthy to actually hand that to as if he'll handle it well? If you were to give him every bit of you, is he actually capable of handling it better than you could? I really think think the answer is yes. In fact, I think the answer is emphatically yes. The Bible teaches that we are all separated from God because of our sin. We deserve his wrath and left to our own devices. We will all one day receive that wrath. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves you with a great love. And, and even though by default uh, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, he is the God who willingly, lovingly, joyfully makes you alive. How does he do that? He sent his son, Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice in your place to make payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the, the one who conquered sin and death, the king who reigns over even those things, he now calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can give him every bit of you, trusting fully that he is capable and good. I'd love to be helpful to you. You don't need me, but man, I'd love to be helpful. If you're in the room, I'll be down front. And if you want to talk about some stuff, if you're watching us online, again, use the contact form in the video description. But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now as we pray and we sing. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 7. Probably more than, maybe even more than any other week that we're walking through this series together. This is hard. This is hard for us because we, we dig our heels in over things that our culture has taught us. Our culture has taught us to value above other things. That our culture has taught us to to celebrate over other things. Would you give grace to us this morning to open our eyes to see and change our hearts to love what you've said? And man, we've messed this up in more ways than we can count. But you already knew that. You knew that before you wrote the words of 1 Corinthians 7. You knew that from eternity past. And yet, you sent your son to make full and final payment for sin. To call us to repentance, but also call us to rest. So God, where, where we haven't sufficiently repented yet, would you, would you make that clear in our hearts and would you give us the courage to walk faithfully? 
And God, where we haven't found our rest yet because we've been hanging on to guilt, would you remove guilt forever? Show us your goodness by showing us your grace. God, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? You're big enough to use even a sermon out of 1 Corinthians 7 to save some folks. Open eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Draw men and women into your kingdom right now for the glory of your name and the expansion of your kingdom instead of our own. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.